Well, happy Resurrection Sunday. My name is Emmett Long, and I'm one of the pastors here at Three Rivers Church. I want to thank you for joining us by video in your home or small group today. Today, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. It's the centerpiece of all the Christian calendar in life. It seems sad and a little bit odd that we have to celebrate in isolation today because of the coronavirus, but the Church of Jesus Christ is not defeated because we can't gather today this morning. On the contrary, being physically isolated and unable to meet together publicly is the reality for a lot of our brothers and sisters who are persecuted around the world. And in those places, the church is growing. So today we have a great opportunity to be reminded that the church is not the building, it's God's people. And wherever God's people are scattered, they can go joyfully worshiping God and telling the good news about Jesus. I want to begin our time today by using our current physical reality to help us see some spiritual realities. A pandemic helps us understand spiritual realities better in a few ways. First of all, this pandemic is a reminder of our own mortality. We don't like to think about death in our culture, but we're forced to these days. James asks us rhetorically in James 4, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Thinking about our own mortality and the brevity of life ought to cause us to think about what is ultimate in life, and nothing is more ultimate than knowing God. Secondly, the coronavirus can be a metaphor for us for sin. There are several parallels between COVID-19 and sin. There's no one who is immune from sin or COVID-19. This is part of why this disease is so scary for us all. Coronavirus produces physical sickness and death, but sin also produces spiritual sickness and death. And the fact that somebody is infected with either sin or coronavirus doesn't mean that it's visible on the surface, but it's still working its destruction in their body. Both sin and coronavirus contaminate not just us, but also others. And sin and coronavirus isolate us from others, even if that sin and sickness is not ours. But there's some ways that they're different, too. See, unlike coronavirus typically does, sin doesn't spare children. In fact, unlike coronavirus, everyone is infected by sin. The Bible says we're born in sin, having inherited it from our first parents and having all willingly chosen to rebel against God ourselves. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But the good news is that unlike coronavirus, sin already has a cure in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're promised in the very next sentence that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't have to wait for the chance that a vaccine for sin will be developed. Jesus has already made the way for us to be forgiven and to be clean. The third and the last observation I want to make is that the coronavirus pandemic is an opportunity to expose faith in lesser things that can't save us and to call us to faith in Jesus. This virus didn't take God by surprise. God who promises that he is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes has allowed this virus to sweep through all the countries in the world. And the longer this goes on, the more people will feel a general sense of despair this invisible threat seems to lurk on every door handle and every cough. The economy is starting to teeter in some ways and some jobs are disappearing. And this general sense of uncertainty that a lot of people feel in isolation is on the rise. At the same time, many things that people normally turn to as an anchor in a stormy life are on hold or they're disappearing. I think it's a little bit amusing and very telling about where Americans find their anchors in life, whether it's in buying bulk toilet paper or in the gun shops and liquor stores that are considered essential businesses in this pandemic, with both experiencing record sales. 
But this sense of uncertainty is probably exactly where God wants us in this country. Because often when our idols of health or money or career or security or education or sports or community or family or all of those things fail, the voice of Christ can be heard even more clearly. This week, Ray Ortland asked rhetorically, if your hope cannot outlast you, how can it sustain you? Let me ask you this morning, what are you hoping in? Today, I want to remind you that our hope is in the gospel through the resurrection of Jesus. And that promise is unchanging. Jesus is not an anchor just for calm waters. He stands firm no matter how much the waves thrash. And in today's passage, we're going to see that by his resurrection, he has defeated sin and death so that we don't have to fear death. So let's do that as we examine 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 34 today. If you're watching this by video, I want you to take a few minutes where you are to pause and to read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 34. And afterward, I want to draw some observations from the text for us this morning. If you're listening to this by podcast, I'm going to read this text for you. So 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 34. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, Then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. 
Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So there are three big questions we want to ask as we look at this passage today. What does the passage say? What does it teach us about God and man? And what does it teach us that we need to apply to know, to believe, or to do? So first of all, what does the passage say? We're going to spend most of our time on this part today. Here's my outline for today. There's really four sections of this passage. In the first four verses, Paul tells us that the resurrection is at the center of the gospel. In verses 5 through 11, he's going to tell us that the resurrection was a verified fact. It happened in real history. In the third section, in verses 12 through 19 and 29 through 34, he's going to tell us that the resurrection was disbelieved by some then, and it is now. And in verses 20 to 28, he's going to show us the results of the resurrection. So first of all, the resurrection, it's at the center of the gospel. I want to read these first four verses to you again. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul reminds them of the gospel that they received and in which they're standing. And he tells them that the resurrection is at the very center of that. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth about AD 55, near the end of his three-year ministry in Ephesus during his third missionary journey. And this church in Corinth was made up mostly of Gentiles and was one that Paul knew well because he had established it on his second missionary journey. In these first two verses, Paul reminds the Corinthian church that the gospel is not only something that we embrace at the beginning of the Christian life, he tells them that they received it, but it's also a source of strength throughout the whole Christian life because it's something they have to stand in. This word gospel that we use so often is actually not originally a a religious term. It was a military term. It was talked about when a general came back and shared the good news of his victory. And this is good news of the victory that Jesus has has purchased for us this morning. So the gospel message is not only for evangelism, but it's also for discipleship. It's not only for unbelievers, but also for believers. We can never outgrow the simplicity or plumb the depths of the implications of the gospel. And just like the Corinthians, we need the same reminders of our perseverance in following Jesus is evidence of our salvation. The second thing that we see in this passage in verse 3 and 4 is that Paul tells us that the resurrection of Christ is an essential part of the content of the gospel. This is the very essence of the gospel. Often at Three Rivers, we tell the gospel in four big words, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, we understand that God created the world and everything that he made was good and perfect. But in the fall, Adam and Eve 
chose to willingly disobey and walk away from God's good creation. And that had disastrous effects for them, for all of creation, and for all of us. But God didn't leave them, and he didn't leave us there. In redemption, he sent Jesus to be at this perfect sacrifice, to live the life that we couldn't live. And that redemption was secured by not only his death, but his resurrection. And restoration, we look forward to the day that he makes all things new that a new heaven and a new earth perfectly is restored and we are with him once more reunited in that perfect fellowship. As we think about redemption in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself comes to redeem and to save his people. The grand narrative of scripture climaxes when the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So we believe that the gospel is not preached if the resurrection is not proclaimed. Well, what is the gospel? We say this in our membership class. The gospel is the news that the just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin and the resurrection so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. In verse 3 in this passage, the phrase, Christ died for our sins, teaches this fancy phrase that we call substitutionary atonement. But it simply means that Jesus was our substitute to pay the debt for our sins that we could never pay. Jesus showed his incredible love for us when he died in our place and for our sin to reconcile us to God. He canceled the legal demands of God of justice against our sin for all who repent and believe in him. But more than canceling our sin, he brings us from the courtroom where we are. He brings us from the courtroom where we're declared innocent. And he welcomes us into God's living room where we're loved and adopted and given a new name and a mission to share this good news with the whole world for God's glory. And in verses three and four, we see that this was done in accordance with the scriptures, teaching us that Christ's work fulfills God's saving purposes and implying that all of scripture points us ultimately to the grace of God in Christ. These first four verses are a declaration of the gospel and a call to everyone even Christians, to respond to the good news about Jesus. So how do we respond to this good news? Well, the Bible has two words for that, repent and believe. Repentance involves turning from our sin and ourselves, and believing involves trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So we see that the resurrection is at the center of the gospel. But these, the next passage, the next part of this passage, verses 5 through 11, Paul tells us that the resurrection was verified that Jesus appeared to a lot of different people, and those are proof that he actually did rise from the dead. His burial confirms that he really died. His appearances to eyewitnesses confirm that he really rose. We're not building our lives on a myth or a legend when we look to him for grace to forgive our sins and to live as disciples of the kingdom. Paul reminds us in order that Jesus appeared to Peter, to the apostles with Thomas absent, to 500 disciples, many of whom were still alive at the time when Paul wrote this, to James, the half-brother of Christ, and then again to the apostles with Thomas present. And then lastly, he says that Jesus appeared to Paul himself in verses 8 through 11. And Paul at this point talks about his own unworthiness to be called not only a Christian but an apostle because he was once a persecutor of the church. But in that, he realizes that God has, has poured out on him unmerited favor, that God's grace made Paul what he is. 
Paul's testimony in these verses 8 through 10 allow us to see what the effects of the grace of God can have, even on those whose hearts have been hardened toward Christ. When we look at the life of Paul, how he describes those effects in his own life, those effects include humility, honesty regarding past sin, and ongoing repentance. And that's the same for us as well. God's transforming grace not only gives us a new identity. Paul says, I am what I am by God's grace. But in, in his case, it also means that he's no longer in a persecutor of the church, but an apostle. And he gives us the strength to labor diligently in God's service. When we, like Paul, are, are grateful for God's grace, it means we rejoice over the effects of his grace in our lives, but we never take credit for those effects. John Palmer reminded us last week that God is the hero of the Bible. He's the hero in Paul's story, and he's the hero in every believer's story as well. The third thing that we see in this text about what it says is the resurrection was disbelieved by some then, and it's also disbelieved, disbelieved by some now. We see that in verses 12 to 19 and in 29 through 34. There were many who were denying the resurrection. Verse 12 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? You know, most Greeks didn't believe that people's bodies would be resurrected after death. They saw the afterlife as something that happened only to the soul. According to Greek philosophers, the soul was the real person, imprisoned in a physical body, and at death the soul was released. There was no immortality to the body, but the soul entered an eternal state. But Christianity, on the other hand, affirms that the body and soul will be reunited after resurrection. The church at Corinth was in the heart of this Greek culture, this sophisticated Greek culture, and some believers had a difficult time believing in a physical resurrection. So Paul wanted to clear up the confusion for them. Today in our culture, many people recognize Jesus as a good teacher, but not as God. But Jesus himself claimed to be God. And when he was called a good teacher in Mark 10, 17, he responded, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. His implication, I am God. In John 8, 58, Jesus is disputing with the Pharisees. And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They wanted to stone him because they understood that his claim. When he said, I am, he was using God's covenant name. And the resurrection backs up his claim to be God. Today, many people hold a relativistic worldview that says there's no absolute truth and you can have your truth while I have my truth. But Jesus came and said that he is the way the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to God the Father but through him. Other people today hold a naturalistic, atheistic worldview that says if something can't be empirically proven through the scientific method, it, it can't have happened. But the resurrection of Jesus was a miracle. And the very point of a miracle is that the God who created and sustains the universe bends the rule of nature that he created to do something that's not otherwise possible. And in doing so, God demonstrates his glory as God and calls us to believe in him and to worship him. Finally, in this verse 12, look at this again. He says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, some of those in the church at Corinth were taking their doctrine from the cultural elites outside the church. The same is in our culture today. They didn't want to be seen as being the uncool kids, the uneducated ones, as socially unacceptable. So they caved on the resurrection. 
I mean, who could possibly believe something so crazy as a dead man coming back to life, right? But the result for them was a doctrinal disaster, a loss of hope and a misunderstanding of the gospel. The temptation for the church today is to cave on this or on other matters that the Bible speaks clearly about. And it's the same temptation that the Corinthians faced. But the answer is not to ask, what does the culture say? But what does the manual, the Bible say? That's why at Three Rivers we say that to be a disciple is to hear and obey. And the way that we hear best is by reading God's word. Paul's conclusion about the resurrection is in verses 13 to 19 and 29 to 32. And he says, if there is no resurrection, we're forced to accept a lot of terrible conclusions. About Christ, he says, if if there is no resurrection, the resurrection story is a lie. About gospel preaching in verse 14, it's useless. And those who preach the gospel, they're all liars. And about us as living believers, in verse 14, he says, our trust in God is empty and worthless and hopeless, and we are still in our sins. In verse 19, he says, we are the most miserable of all creatures. And those who live, suffer, and die for Christ are fools, he tells us in 29 through 31. But wait, there's more. It gets worse. About departed believers in verse 18, he says, they are forever dead, never able to rise again. And in this present life, we should just live it up because tomorrow we might die. But in verses 33 to 34, at the end of that argument, Paul issues a correction. He reacts to all of this by rebuking Christians who have been listening to those who scoff at and who disbelieve the resurrection of Jesus. So the last point of this passage about what does it say, Paul tells us what are the results of the resurrection in verses 20 to 28. Verse 20, he says the opposite of the arguments is actually true because Christ did rise from the dead as he promised. Verse 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because he rose, we know that what he said is true. He is God. Because he rose, we have certainty that our sins are forgiven. Because he rose, he lives and represents us to God. Because he rose and defeated death, we know that we also will be raised. And because he rose, Paul tells us that there are now two representatives for all mankind in verses 21 to 22. There's Adam and Jesus. And Adam brought about ruin and death. Romans 5.12, Paul describes it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. But the good news is the second Adam, Christ, brings about resurrection and deliverance. We read this in 21 and 22 as well. There's a beautiful picture of this in John 11. Uh, verse 25 to 27, when Jesus goes to see Martha and Mary after their brother Lazarus dies, and he tells tells Martha that her brother will rise again. She says, I know he will rise again at the last day, but then he tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who believes, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And I think in one of the greatest declarations of faith in the Bible, she says back to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. In the midst of her pain, she hangs on to the reality that Christ is the Son of God and that he is the life and the resurrection. Paul will tell us in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, 
but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the effect of the resurrection is that there are two representatives for all mankind, Adam and Christ. Who are you identifying with today? In addition to these two representatives, Paul also tells us that there are two resurrections in these verses. In verse 20 and 23, he tells us that there's the resurrection of Christ, that Christ was raised first. Acts 26, 23 uh, gives us more insight on this. It says that the Christ may suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's us, y'all. Not only has Christ been raised, but there's a final resurrection coming. We read about that in verse 23, that we're, we're promised when Christ returns, all his people who have died will be raised. And at that time, the reign of Christ will be fully established. And when this, his reign is fully established, the final enemy will be destroyed. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What a glorious day that's going to be. Jesus will reverse the curse that Adam started and we will be with him forever. God's order is going to be fully restored. We read about that in verses 25 to 27. And this is good news. This is the good news that will sustain us with hope, even if we die before Jesus returns, because we know his promise is sure. So that's what this passage says. What does it teach us about God and man? Well, in verses 20 to 28, Paul emphasizes three gospel truths that are results of the resurrection. First, believers are united to Christ and share in every benefit of his kingdom by his work. You see, apart from Christ, we're united to Adam and we share in the death sentence brought about by his work. But if by faith we are in Christ, then we become citizens of the kingdom of God and will share in the victory by which he has defeated sin and death. Since Christ, who is the first fruits, has been raised, then we who are the remainder of the harvest will also have been raised. The second truth that we see in verses 20 to 28 about God and man is that Christ's work addresses every level of human need. He removes our sin and our guilt before God. He gives us a desire to obey God's word and empowers us by the Holy Spirit. Without that, we're unable to do what we want to in our sins. And one day he's going to come and completely free us from the spiritual and physical effects of sin. And the third thing that we see in verses 20 to 28 that it teaches us about God and man is that Jesus fulfills all of God's purposes for humanity. We see this in Genesis 1 and again in Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is cited here in 1 Corinthians 15, 27. It Those passages tell us that humans were created to rule over creation in a way that displays God's glory. And sin and death have distorted this design so that instead we live to display our own glory. Only in Jesus, who has conquered sin and death, have we seen God's design faithfully expressed. At his return, we will witness two final acts of faithfulness. Jesus is going to demonstrate his complete power over death, the last enemy, and he will display God's glory by delivering the kingdom of God to the Father. Well, what does this passage teach us that we need to apply, to know, to believe, to do? There's lots of applications here. I think a lot of them come from the text as you read through, but there's three that I want to draw your attention to, uh, particularly that I think we can apply this morning. And these are for us to believe and to share with a world that is in desperate need of Jesus. The first is simply this. In Christ, our sins can be forgiven. We read this in verses 3 and 10. 
that verse 3 says Christ died for our sins. In verse 10, Paul says that by the grace of God, I am what I am. Later, as he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul would say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Paul was a persecutor of the church, a blasphemer. But he says there is nothing that we have done that is too much for Jesus to save us or to keep us. So this morning with Paul, I implore you to rest in God's grace as you hold fast to the word that has been preached to you. Second application is that in Christ, our present reality is transformed. We see that again in verse 10. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. We don't have to live in fear or defeat. We can live in the power of the resurrection, the real power for living that comes from resurrection. You see, if I'm in Christ, I exchange Adam's rebellion, his sin, and his death for the perfect obedience and righteousness and life that is found in Christ. And the third application that we see is that in Christ, our future is secure because Jesus' victory over sin and death is sure. Verses 25 to 26 tell us, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. If we're in Christ, we have no reason to fear death because Christ has defeated death and will raise all those who are his to eternal life. We can look with confident expectation to the future that God is creating, and we can serve him faithfully until our faith becomes sight. Jesus truly redeems our past, he transforms our present, and he secures our future if we're in him. So I want to invite you to rest in those truths today. If you have never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today can be the day that you know you're forgiven, you're transformed, and you're secure. I or any of our pastors would love to speak with you about this, and if you want to follow Jesus or have any questions, we'd love to talk to you and pray with you about that. We'd love to connect you to others in Christian community where we can help each other as we seek to follow Jesus together. So let's pray this morning. God, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the reality of the resurrection. Thank you for your great rescue plan for us in Jesus. Thank you for not leaving us in our sins, but coming to make a way for us to be forgiven and reunited and give us purpose and meaning in a future. God, I pray that this morning that the reality of the resurrection would land on us in a way that washes over our soul, that we would, we would be in awe of you, that we would worship you, that we would know the forgiveness of Christ, and that we would serve you with our lives. I pray that you would use this message, not just from my list, but from Paul's words to us in 1 Corinthians 15, to transform hearts and minds and cause us to walk in your way today. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to leave you with 1 Corinthians 15, 56. At the end of this chapter, the very last verse, Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The rivers and disciples of Jesus, with this good news, you are sent.